The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Well, it took Rick Perry almost six years, but he got what he was aiming for. And, and by the way, that was the Department of Energy I was reaching for a while ago. So. Rick Perry's reach did not exceed his grasp. He's Donald Trump's pick to run a department he thinks shouldn't exist. Maybe he thinks it doesn't exist. They told him it was this off-the-books black ops site. I guess every policeman in his heart of hearts does a job he thinks shouldn't exist. Eh, that's probably not true. I mean, Rick Perry was a successful governor of the second biggest state in America. He probably deserves better than to be remembered for one gaffe. So what does he do? He takes a job that will remind everyone of this one gaffe every day for the rest of his time as Secretary of Energy. It's like Dan Quayle playing Jack Kennedy in a new biopic. I am Jack Kennedy. I am. It's like Howard Dean establishing a domestic-only travel agency. It's as if Martin Van Buren sold out of a little van a product called mustache wax for sweet sandy whiskers. 1840 election deep cut, John Dickerson, you know what I'm saying. Imagine two driver's side airbags deploying on the jowl of a man. This is what his sideburns looked like, that they had exploded from his face. He definitely beats Chester Arthur for the hirsute pursuit. And this is why he was called Sweet Sandy Whiskers. I mean, running a department you think shouldn't exist, that's like a vegan taking a job at a rendering plant or as the hostess at a Red Lobster. Or actually, it's like a lobster taking a job as the hostess at a Red Lobster. To be fair, I thought the endless shrimp was a pro-crustacean conservation stance. Oh, when I found out my shell is red. There have been others who have taken jobs in the cabinet, jobs they wish didn't exist. Bill Bennett, former Secretary of Education, was in fact against the Department of Education. He was not against Endless Shrimp. Audio footnote. Wait, what the hell was that? Audio footnote is just that. We'll come back to it. When? How? When's this going to work? How about the end of the show? All right, sure. Well... That'll be something to look forward to. On the show today, I spiel about the idea of playing the long game and the downside of everyone. Hey, over here, I'm playing the long game. But first, more analysis of the appointment of Rex Tillerson to be Secretary of State. Joining us is the U.S. Ambassador to Russia for two years, from 2012 to 2014, Mike McFall. The best thing Donald Trump likes about Rex Tillerson, and I know this because he tweeted, the thing I like best about Rex Tillerson is that he has vast experience at dealing successfully with all types of foreign governments. To which one wag on Twitter, okay, it was me, said, he has had success defined as mutually beneficial deals with autocrats sitting on massive reserves of oil. Diplomacy is different from deals. So someone who knows about that is Mike McFall, who is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia during the Obama administration, is now a professor at Stanford. Thanks for joining us, Ambassador McFall. Sure. Thanks for having me. So let's perhaps not prejudge Rex Tillerson just on the fact that he had this job that caused him to come into contact and do deals with Vladimir Putin. Is there any evidence, though, that he learned from the job in a way that would help America as opposed to a way that did demonstrably help Exxon? 
Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. And I think uh, it's incumbent upon him to prove that fact, right? I mean, let's remember he started working at ExxonMobil in 1975. He's been working for that company for four decades. Uh, I think he's he's successful at that. I want to be clear about that in terms of ExxonMobil's interests and the interest of their shareholders. And I personally work closely with ExxonMobil uh, when I was in the government, both when I was at the White House and as ambassador because of their dealings in Russia. I know their team well. But their team is focused on one thing, that is profit maximization for ExxonMobil. And for that, you have to go and find oil and gas reser- oil reserves for them around the world. And as you uh, hinted in your opening remarks, that tends to be <laughs> controlled by autocrats all around the world, and therefore you have to do deals with them. And that means you don't think about issues like democracy and human rights. You don't think about issues like um, uh, pushing back on ideas of spheres of influence. Uh, you don't want to get into those things. Now, I want to keep my mind open that uh, as if he moves into this new job, he could adjust, but he hasn't been doing that for the last last four decades of his professional career. And it's hard for people to rethink the way they think about the world after four decades of thinking of it in one way. I'd, I'll bet you he hasn't thought about SM3s uh, or TRQs or Arbeca. Uh, and I used all those acronyms on purpose, and I hope you don't know what they mean either, because those are the acronyms that you need to know to deal with Russia uh, when you're not talking about energy. What should the Senate ask Mr. Tillerson to uh, discern his actual views on Russia? Some of my top questions would be, do you agree with the Obama administration that sanctions should only be lifted uh, if Russia changes its policy in Ukraine and stops supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine? That was one round of sanctions. You know, gives back Crimea. That was a a second round of sanctions. Uh, You know, I'd like to hear his answer on that. I'd like to hear his answer on... Uh, this idea of spheres of influence that some, I don't want to assign this to particular people, but, but when I was ambassador, I heard many American business people say, you know, why does America care about these countries on Russia's borders? Let's just cut a deal. Uh, you know, you get your sphere of influence, we get our sphere of influence. I'd like to hear his views on that. I, I want to know what he thinks about North Korea. I want to know what he thinks about Syria. How does he think about the, the NATO alliance? How does he think about our allies in, in Japan and South Korea? And though I mention all those places because those are places that don't have oil uh, and so are not part of his professional experience. I stand ready to be corrected based on the kinds of answers that he gives. Would you ask him, what would you do? Uh, We might be able to imagine what his answers would be for places like Crimea or Ukraine, which are already going on. But maybe a good question would be, what would you do if Russia rolled into Moldova? What would you do if Russia asserted its control of, uh, was it Transnistria? Transnistria, yeah. Those are all good questions. I agree. And I'm not sure what the answer, what do you think the answer should be? How about that? There's the difference between our NATO allies and and countries like Moldova. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would hope the answer would be unequivocal that that you know uh, commitment to Article Five and our 
commitments that an attack on one is an attack on all with respect to NATO. So that would be Latvia, that would be Lithuania, that would be Estonia. But this is why I think maybe Moldova is a more interesting answer. Well, I think it should be like what the Obama administration did. And by the way, what the Bush administration did not do, just to clarify the record, uh, when Russia invaded Georgia, there were no sanctions uh, put in place by the Bush administration in August 2008. I think it was uh, an, uh, an important statement to the world from, from the United States. Uh, and here I give a lot of credit to President Obama and Chancellor Merkel as the leaders in this, that if you do things that violate uh, the territorial integrity of sovereign states, members of the United Nations, uh, you have to pay a price for that. So I would hope that he would think that very similar way about Moldova and think about ways of exacting costs, including to his former business partners at Rosneft just like it was done when they invaded Ukraine. A good question, which brings to mind a good question in a confirmation hearing might be, you want to have good relations with Russia. What do you want Russia to give to us besides just not expanding territorially? What should Russia give to the United States that will be a fruit of these good relations that you're after? What's a good answer to that? I'm glad you brought that up, and I would even go farther. I don't think that good relations with Russia, or any other country in the world for that matter, should ever be the objective or goal of American foreign policy. That's a great point. Good, good relations should lead to a goal, not exactly. be the goal. Exactly. That's the strategy for achieving the outcome we seek. And sometimes the strategy has to be more coercive, depending on what country we're talking about and what issue area. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the fundamental flaws in the way that President-elect Trump keeps talking about policy towards Russia. Putin is very clear what he wants. I mean, uh, he'll, he'll happily give a nice banquet to the president when he visits and call him a great guy uh, and say he's my partner if he, A, recognizes Crimea as part of Russia, uh, B, uh, lifts sanctions, or three, uh, begins to help working with his ally, Mr. Assad, in Syria. So he's got it figured out. The Trump folks need to figure out what their list of objectives are. Is Russia better at the dark arts than the United States is or should we look at evidence that we're talking about Russia's uh, attempt to hack U.S. elections, that maybe they're not that great at it, if we know about it? Well, they have tremendous capability, maybe second only to us with respect to uh, intelligence gathering uh, in those domains. But the big thing that they, they don't have that we do is they have much fewer constraints on both collecting that data and then obviously using it for political purposes, as, uh, as it's clear to me that they did in our election. We have constraints uh, on those kinds of things, and I, I think those constraints are a good thing. Uh, and so they probably do have advantages. I mean, the other piece I would add to that is when I was in the government, in terms of our public diplomacy, it was just extremely frustrating Uh, to engage with the Russian government and media entities close to the Russian government because they would just put out, you know, blatant lies, uh, falsehoods all the time. uh, And we were not at liberty to do that, Uh, (laughs) just to to state the obvious. And that made it very hard to uh, win some of those, those battles. 
Do you think Putin would be willing to trade, say, missiles or arms for what his real objective is? In other words, maybe a few years into the Trump administration, we could point to a lessening of the number of uh, missiles that we have pointed at each other. He could claim that that's a victory, but it's something else that Putin wants. No, I don't think he rolls that way. I don't think he'll yeah. do that. I think he'll he'll push, and he'll he is right now waiting for the concessions, as one of my Russian friends said. He's now you know his guy is one, his friend is now Secretary of State, and he is waiting for this rapprochement to happen. He's waiting for the concessions to come, and I think he would be very unwilling on anything strategic to to do those kind of transactions you know across different domains. Now some symbolic smaller things. I think he would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's why the administration, the new administration, needs a strategy, because if they don't have a strategy, then they're going to go into those meetings. Putin is going to have a strategy. Putin is very focused on what he wants. Uh, he's been playing a long-term strategy here for a while now, and you do not do well interacting with him if you don't have your own strategy. Is it more important to Putin to make it appear as if Trump is his puppet or for Trump to actually be his puppet? In other words, is he willing to maybe lose some face or to have Trump say something that shows independence as long as he thinks that Trump uh, is really doing his bidding? I think Putin's very focused on concrete interests, Russian interests as defined by him. And that that last phrase is very important because if they were defined by somebody else, they would be different interests. Uh, So sanctions. He wants sanctions to be lifted. That's a clear national security economic objective for Russia today. If if it means allowing Trump to sound a little tough in some meeting with him, he'll take that in a heartbeat. Um, Because, you know, good return to earlier conversations, good relations mean nothing if they don't translate into outcomes that serve for us, you know, our security and economic interests. And and there's no doubt in my mind that that's the way Putin thinks about the world. Of all the of all the Baltic states, would you say Estonia is the one that Russia has its eyes on the most? Well, most certainly they have had an adversarial relationship for a while. The tensions are high. But again, I don't predict that in the short run because I think Putin's going to be focused on other things. I don't think he'll – he's not going to want to provoke a conflict with NATO in this honeymoon period when he might be able to achieve the relief of sanctions, some some kind of weird language on Crimea, some endorsement of their strategy in Syria. I mean, he's got a lot to win uh, well before you know messing around with the Baltic states. So I don't think that happens early. I, I think it's – the opposite. He's waiting for these other concessions and he doesn't want to rock the boat while he's seeking to achieve them. Mike McFall was the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Russia. He teaches at Stanford. And now he is going to tell us what those three acronyms mean. Were they minerals? What were they? (laughs) Uh, SM3s are uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, That one I know. uh, TRQs are um, quotas for trading pork in the world. And RBC is the number one uh, business uh, outlet in Russia. And with that, I got to go. Okay. Thank you. you All right. Bye-bye. And now the spiel. Let me give you a lesson on deal-making. Here's the deal with deal-making. 
if you want to make a deal. You might not want to tell the person that you're dealing with your strategy beforehand. In fact, you might want to mislead your adversary to get a better deal. There is, how do you say, an art to deals. I thought of this when I saw Donald J. Trump discussing the Taiwan phone call on Fox News Sunday. I took a call. I heard the call was coming probably an hour or two before. I fully understand the one China policy, but I don't know why we have to be bound by a one China policy unless we make a deal with China having to do with other things, including trade. I mean, look, we're being hurt very badly by China with devaluation with uh, taxing us heavy at the borders when we don't tax them, with building a massive fortress in the middle of the South China Sea, which they shouldn't be doing, and frankly, with not helping us at all with North Korea. You have North Korea, you have nuclear weapons, and China could solve that problem, and they're not helping us at all. Now, let's put aside the assessment that China's devaluing their currency to help with trade. They're allowed to do that. It's not that bad. This was a better argument six years ago. And China does help a bit with North Korea. China doesn't use its Security Council veto as they could with North Korea matters. And U.S. and China work together to craft sanctions that they place on North Korea. The U.S. more eagerly than China. But China does work with the U.S. Let me make an analogy. If Russia worked with the U.S. on issues like Ukraine or Crimea, like China works with the U.S. on North Korea, then the Ukraine situation would be a lot better than it is now. I'm putting that all aside. That's the art of knowing actual things about the world. Donald Trump never wrote a book about that, doesn't really claim that that's his thing. The art of the deal is what we and he are talking about. Now, let's say you really did want to use Taiwan as a bargaining chip, that you wanted to at least bluff that you were willing to threaten Nixon-era policies, the one-China policy, in order to get some concessions. Here's how you would do it. You'd say... Well, maybe Taiwan's its own country, for reals. Maybe the Chinese need to recognize Taiwan. Maybe I'm going to recognize Taiwan. I mean, I'm not an unreasonable man. Perhaps I can be convinced that this isn't the wise course of action to take, but it is certainly something I have to consider. Here's what you don't do. You don't, after saying all that, say, it's really just part of negotiations. It's a negotiations ploy. It's a threat. I'm holding my cards close to the vest and playing the long game. You know who doesn't say I'm holding my cards close to the vest and playing the long game? People who are actually holding their cards close to the vest and playing the long game. Truth is, China cares a lot more about Taiwan than Trump or any American not named Jeremy Lin does. Actually, let's even include Jeremy Lin. And it would be Lin sanity, insanity, and all the other sanities for Trump to threaten a shooting war with China over what? A freer floating renminbi? It's like when Trump questioned if he'd come to NATO allies' aid. It's a terrible bluff, because the very nature of that bluff invites someone calling the bluff. Before the bluff was made, Russia was never going to invade a Baltic state. After the bluff, maybe they're saying, well, he may be bluffing. Trump definitely seems to understand some negotiating tactics to act crazy or to be crazy or to ask for things you don't really want or to flatter the person you're doing negotiations with. But he stops understanding right at the part where you're supposed to not say, it's a negotiating tactic. I'm a brilliant negotiator. No good negotiations happen when one guy sits down saying, you know, I am a brilliant negotiator. Think about all the times someone's ever said that in a movie. Does he win the negotiation? You know, guys, before we play this game of poker, I'd like to tell you, I'm extremely skilled at poker. Okay, ante up. 
A similar thing's going on with nuclear weapons. There's a reason why every president, every important person who has anything to say about nuclear policy will always say the same boring thing. We won't rule out a first strike capability. Because that is the very point of having nuclear weapons. It's not to use them. It's to credibly threaten the use of them. Instead, Trump said, hey, what's the point of having them? Back to Taiwan. Let's say that talking to Taiwan was this big tactic, not just this idea put in his ear by Bob Dole, who was on Taiwan's payroll. And that all happened, by the way. Let's say the idea was, all right, let's extract some concessions from China. It would have maybe played out as it did up to the point where someone asks Trump, why'd you do it? And at that point, were he using it as a tactic, you would say something like, well, you know, I'm thinking about rethinking our relationship. Or you'd say, you know, I've been really thinking about not wanting to do things the way they're usually done just because that's how they're usually done. And Trump did say all that, but then he said, hey, I'm using it as a negotiation, thus ruining the usefulness as a point of negotiation. Let's pretend how this negotiation is going to go. The U.S., we might recognize Taiwan, the Chinese, then we might invade Taiwan. The U.S., instead of doing that, how about you lower some tariffs? The Chinese, no, we'll just invade Taiwan and not lower tariffs. What's your move? The U.S., maybe we'll come to Taiwan's defense. China, yeah, I don't think you will. And let's say you do. We'll have some sort of a war over Taiwan. It's a war every one of our 1.6 billion citizens will be into, and almost none of yours will support. For us, it's essential to our way of life, our conception of the universe. For you, it's a country you get your toasters from. Let me amend that, one of the countries you get your toasters from. Now, where were we on our negotiations? I'll say this about the media. The media tends to hyperventilate when it comes to immediately discerning Trump's strategy. Just give it time and we will find out what he's really doing and thinking. He will appoint the secretaries and the undersecretaries that he's going to appoint. He's going to one day actually tell us what he's really doing about tariffs, if he's bluffing, if he's not. We're going to find out what he really is missing by skipping intelligence briefs. And we're going to find out the real reason he broke precedent on this sensitive area, sensitive to the Chinese at least. I understand the need for fast explanations, but they can be off base. Although with that said, let's also remember the least plausible explanation for most of Trump's motives are his own explanations. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson constructed the audio footnote. Just producer Chris Berube can't wait to hear the audio footnote. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, remembers where he was when he first heard about the institution of the audio footnote. Andy Bowers is considering either giving audio footnotes their own podcast or banning them entirely from the Panoply Network, of which he is chief content officer. The gist, and now the Bill Bennett audio footnote. Audio footnote. Bennett, the author of the Book of Virtues and a general moral scold, came in for wide criticism when it was revealed that he ran up $8 million in gambling losses. He vowed to stop gambling in 2003. Then a little bit later on Sean Hannity's radio show, he qualified that by saying he'll stop excessive gambling, telling Hannity, quote, I still want to place a bet on the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl. The Bills have not made the playoffs since Bennett made his pronouncement. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.